This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, friends. You catch me just tucking in to a bag of Percy Pigs and drinking a can of Rubicon Mango while also trying to channel the spirit of a mature adult woman because today I'm going to be comfort eating with Krishnan Guru Murthy, who is most definitely a grown-up. Krishnan is one of the UK's most famous journalists. He's been one of the main faces on Channel 4 News for over 20 years. Krishnan is known for needling politicians with a dogged persistence and upsetting a few celebrities along the way. So I'm interested to see how he takes to being the one poked and prodded today. We're meeting face-to-face for our chat, so I'm hoping for an off-duty and relaxed Krishnan. Hopefully, who is not going to make me flounce out in a strop like he did with Robert Downey Jr. Do you think I should take him my last Percy Pig? Oh, no. Too late. (laughs) Delicious. What do you think, Kat? Krishnan Guru Murthy, welcome to Comfort Eating. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to this. I was surprised that you would do this i mean you know i love i love food i love talking about food i love eating food so um what's not to like about a podcast about food especially comfort food i know but you're incredibly busy and incredibly important well i'm i'm certainly the former um (laughs) so but no it's great i mean you know um it's weird doing something in person face to face i know after so long I know that you know how this podcast works. I get to try my guests' favourite comfort food, something that you eat in more private moments of your life. What have you brought for me today? Well, I have to admit, this is probably a pre-marriage comfort food. It hasn't been done for quite a while. But um, there were many times in my life 
where that was basically a meal. Ambrosia rice pudding. He is taking out of his bag two tins of magic. (laughs) Pale blue cans of ambrosia rice pudding, the original, the best. It's the original and probably best eaten out of the can. And before I even needed to nudge you whether you would have raspberry jam, you've got... Actually, it's strawberry. It should be strawberry. strawberry. You've actually got a bon Strawberry is better, I think, with rice pudding. We're asking one of Britain's eminent thinkers to actually open a tin in front of me. But not with my tin opener. So it's going very badly, actually. No, no, it's going. It's going. Yay! Pass me the magic over. I'll have either. Hang on, I was going to do you a blob of Oh, please, please, blob of please jam first. Put blob. For the record, I'd like to say that that is a full, healthy, a big blob. heaped dessert spoon of strawberry jam <laughs> blobbed into the top of the ambrosia. Now, are you going to take little bits from the edge, adding a little part, or are you going to mix it? No, 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 no definitely mix. See, mm. the thing is, by the time you get to the bottom, there won't be any jam left anyway. Do you know so, something? That is... <laughs> you're enjoying it. It's... <laughs> well, see, I am literally having a Harry Met Sally... When Harry Met Sally moment... It's rice, sugar show. and dairy. It's sort of what's not to like. And, you I know, think, I haven't had this for a long time, but I'm so asking myself why. So you're saying this is a single man's comfort food? You couldn't honestly do this in front of your wife. I'm eating from the tin with the half the tin held off with a large blob of jam. So, no, I mean, I don't think I have done this since marriage, but I used to do it quite a lot before because it's the kind of thing you could have at three in the morning when you look into the barren cupboards of your single man's kitchen <laughs> and you see there's, there's, there's tuna, there's sweet corn and there's rice pudding and you kind of go, okay, it's definitely a rice pudding moment. And then would you walk into the and sit on the sofa and eat? Mm-hmm. What, what were you doing till three in the morning? Well... I just spit out. I'm sort of, I, I like staying up late. I always did stay up late. Were you a clubber? I was a bit, yeah. I mean, in my student days and 20s, yeah, I'd club quite a lot. I, I, will, I was never an all-night clubber. I was not sort of a stagger out of a club at five in the morning clubber. But um, I used to like dancing. So um, I just used to go to clubs and dance rather than doing everything else. What kind of dancing? Um, were you a very... A flamboyant, demonstrative yeah. dance? Yeah. Ah. Yeah, probably a bit embarrassing. I mean, I think if my kids saw me dance, even when I was younger, they'd be absolutely horrified. But, yeah, I was sort of quite... Um, well, you remember 90s dance music. Oh, of course. So that's kind of dancing. And a bit of sort of jazz funk in there and, you know... What, like... I'm trying to think of jazz funk. I'm kind of going to Jamiroquai. Yeah, a bit Jamiroquai would be the answer, but without the hat. And probably not as good. I would quite often dance in a very exhibitionist way um, when I was younger and still might in a very rare moment. You've caught me in absolutely the perfect moment for this because I haven't eaten all day, so I'm absolutely starving. And this is exactly how I would eat my ambrosia rice pudding because I would have probably forgotten to eat. Yes. And I'd be starving and it would be the middle of the night and then this would quell my hunger pangs. And that's exactly the situation I'm in now. You were born in Liverpool. You grew up in East Lancashire with your family. So your mum and dad 
you had an older sister, Gita, and your younger brother, Ravi. Tell me about your household. Um, it was a really kind of happy childhood, I have to yeah. say. I mean, we were a nuclear family. Mum and Dad had come over from India in the 60s. So it was just us. All their family were either in India or elsewhere, scattered around the world. And at first, of course, it was just me and my sister. There's two years between us, and I was the younger one. And and then my brother came along later on, so he's seven years younger than me. So that sort of changed the dynamic. But first of all, whether sort of whether the nuclear family living in a a brand new house on a housing estate that's still being built um, just yeah. outside Clitheroe in Lancashire. My dad's a doctor, and my mum. Well, my mum went to university for a bit, but then stopped because um, she wanted to complete the medical degree that she had started in India before she got married. But it didn't quite work out, um, I think, because of the demands of being a parent. So my mum was at home most of the time. And, yeah, no, everything was sort of, you know, it was a pretty idyllic childhood from that point of view. It, it, was, it was one of those childhoods where you would run away in the morning and hang out with your mates and my mum and dad wouldn't really know where we were and then yeah. we'd ring at five or six o'clock and say, oh, I'm at Ed's house, I'm staying for tea, um, I'll see you later. Yeah. Or can you pick me up at seven or whatever it might be? I think we were the last generations to do that. I wonder if we were. I don't know whether it's just because of where we live now. I can't imagine that kind of childhood with my children in London. I still hope that goes on yeah. in the countryside which is where we were. But, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a childhood unlike any childhood I'm able to give my children. As a very young child, I was, I was a bit golden child. I was, you know, a mummy's boy and very affectionate and very cuddly. I heard that you were called lover boy. That was indeed my, my nickname <laughs> at um, nursery school. Um, my teacher used to call me lover boy because I would always give her a hug and a kiss. Uh, before I left. And if I forgot, you know, if it was one of those days where my mum just took me home and I would suddenly remember and insist on being taken back <gasps> to give my teacher a hug and a kiss. Um, so, yes, my nickname was Loverboy. But it kind of, it was sort of who I was. I've always been an affectionate kid, always was, and still am, really. I think that's probably the last one of the last words that people would use. I know, but can you have, a, you have you. an image on the news, don't you? Yes. Which is, which is hard-nosed and, you know, difficult interviewer. And... But I don't think you let that side show of you on anything else that you ever do. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of other things you've done. And I don't think I've ever seen that come through. I'm not sure you'd have seen it, though. I mean, um, you know, all the stuff I do is basically sort of quite serious now. You do have an image, and so people don't expect you to be the cuddly one, which I probably am. <laughs> Did you have good friends at school? Yeah, and I'm still still close to them. Ah. Yeah. Who? I, um, Ed, who I've been best friends with since I was four, who lived down the road from me in a little village outside Clitheroe where we lived, um, and then... And my friend Ollie, who we then went to primary school with, aged eight. And the three of us are still best mates. In fact, we're having dinner 
tomorrow. Um, and, you know, I've always lived, well, not always lived quite close to each other, but somehow it's kind of worked out that way. Tell me about your food memories with Ed and Ollie. Well, I used to go to Ed's house after school when my mum went back to university for a bit. And so his mum used to pick us up from the bus and take us back to her house. And so my food memories were having, you know, we're being ravenous after school, the way you are at, you know, five o'clock. And we always just used to sit down and have big loaves of crusty bread with butter and jam and marmite. I discovered marmite at at their house. And Ed's mum used to make damson jam. Mm. And I didn't know what damsons were. I'd never heard of it, but I just kind of went along with it. Where did she get the damsons? They had a big garden and she used, yeah. to, she used to grow them. So um, it took me a long time to work out what a damson was, to be honest. But, um, but yeah, so I, I suppose that's what I associate with them, that white, big loaves of big white crusty bread. And then loads of butter. And butter that you can't spread. Yeah. And <laughs> it's a little bit hard and it's yeah. ripping the bread. Yeah. And then loads of damson jam. Damson jam, yeah, or marmite. So these seem like very kind of quintessential English things. Did they ever eat Indian food with you? Yes. I mean, my mum is a great cook and entirely self-taught and self-taught after she came to Britain. So she didn't have anyone teaching her when she grew up. And the, the, the kiddish things that we would have would, would be these... They're like chapatis, but they're called puris. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're basically the same um, dough, but instead of frying it in a frying pan the way you would with a chapati you put it in a, a deep pan of hot oil and it pu- puffs up within yeah. about 30 seconds. You flip it over and that's it. And it's, it's just, you know, it comes out hot and crispy and delicious. And we used to have these competitions of who could eat the most puris. And, and we would just have them often on their own or just with tomato ketchup. And, and yeah. just you'd roll them up and then dip them in tomato sauce and gobble them down. And that was a real kid tea time thing and so ed in particular um and and ollie would have these puri eating competitions and i think ed got up to about 23 (laughs) at one time and my mum would literally be just sitting there frying puris for hours and then rolling out the dough and all the rest of it so you still see ed and ollie after all these years like why do you think that's lasted so long i don't know i think we just made really firm bonds and you know, had such shared experiences all the way through life from very young age, through adolescence. You know, they know the real me, I suppose. And, you know, they're not impressed by anything I do at work or I can still spend an evening with them and it's, you know, it's not about anything I'm doing. And, Mm. yeah, I think that depth of knowledge, of understanding of somebody is really important to me, I think. And... You know, I I have conversations all day, every day. So I don't need friends just to have conversations. Mm. I need friends for understanding and empathy and, you know, all, the, all those sort of really deep links in a relationship, I think. We went to a boys' school and I think the dynamic of boys' school, particularly in those, in those eras, was a really piss-takey culture. So um, a lot lot of the things that we will say to each other as part of our normal friendship, you'd never get away with saying to someone you met as an adult because people would be offended and you'd end up falling out with them. So 
we, and we can really say absolutely anything to each other and mean it sometimes. You know, if you, if you really think your friend is being a dick, you can tell them and you'll still be friends at the end of the day. You know, you know you're not going to fall out. So I think that kind of relationship is very important. Tell me about school. Were you the clever one in class? Well, I went to a school full of clever kids. Um, so secondary school, we were streamed. And so all the cleverest kids from the first year were put into a class together mm. and then would all be expected to apply to Oxford and Cambridge and half of us would get in. And that was kind of the, that was the stream you were on. Um, so wow. I was surrounded by clever kids from the age of 11. And Is that not hard? Yeah, it is quite hard, you know, because you feel the pressure. Um, but it's also very good because you're also surrounded by lots of clever kids who are pushing you on to do other things. And um, so, no, I mean, I, I was actually, I was always sort of middle or bottom of the class and didn't try very hard. And my teachers would always say, oh, he doesn't work, he doesn't try, he doesn't do it. You know, he's just good at talking in class but never does any of the work. And, um, and then I would sort of pull it off at the end of the year in the exams. Last minute. Yeah. Which is what I did, and again, at school. You know, in my A-levels, I got... I failed every maths mock I ever did. You know, I got a U in my last maths mock. And then I got an A in the A-level. And my maths teacher was really cross. You know, he wasn't pleased for me. He was just pissed off. And he, <laughs> he sort of walked over to me on the results day when we went into school to get our results. And he just looked at me and he went, you're like a cat, you. You've got nine lives and you always land on your feet. And walked off. And, um, and that was, so, so no, I wasn't the clever one. I was sort of the one who was never really meeting their potential. What else did you do when you were at school? I did a lot of music and drama and debating and, you know, piano and guitar. And yeah, I was really into acting, I suppose. A lot of school plays, directed school plays, was in school plays. Um, it was in youth, you know, Manchester Youth Theatre and then National Youth Theatre. Um, and did a lot of debating competitions. Wow. Um, if you could put a pin in what you're doing right now and suddenly be an actor, would you do it? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I, that was kind of my first um, mad dream. And yes, I mean, you know, I, I suppose if there was any other sort of performing thing, well, I say any other. I mean, the really kind of like, you know, dream at the back of your head is, is, is to be a pop star. But if, you, if, you, if you're not going to be a pop star, then yes, the dream at the back of your head is to be an actor. Which pop star did you want to be? I don't know, the best one. You know. <laughs> Just the best? Just, yeah. Just in the Olympics of pop stars, the gold, <laughs> the gold standard one. No, I think, I think, to be honest, a bit of both would have been quite cool. You know, one of those actors who um, has a band on the side, but is actually surprisingly good. So your dad was a consultant radiologist. Did his career have an influence on you? Well, to the extent that all I ever thought I was going to be was a doctor, yes. Mm -hmm. And most of my parents' friends were doctors, Indian doctors. Mm -hmm. So that was the world we knew. My mum's father had been a doctor. That's all I ever really thought was within my world. And I didn't really know about other 
jobs and professions. And especially being an Indian immigrant family, there were only two jobs you could do anyway. You know, if you weren't going to be a doctor, you were going to be a lawyer. So, um, and, and, you know, my friend's parents who were in businesses and things like that were just, that was just a whole other world that we didn't understand. So, yeah, I mean, his job really influenced us from that point of view. You know, he used to go into his office and sit at the desk and pretend to be reporting x-rays. And he would he would go in sometimes at the weekend, and so I would sometimes go in with him too and sit on a sit on his secretary's chair yeah. and, and look at x-rays <laughs> and play with his... He used to have one of those dictaphones that he would, um, you know, put his reports into that would then be typed up. And so I would I would love playing with those machines and doing all of that, you know. So when you were 18, you got a place at Oxford to study medicine, but there was a last-minute change of plan. Yeah. I mean, I was all set to go off and be a doctor and do medicine, but in my year out between A-levels and university, I started working in TV. How? Um, well, I, I, because I'd done all that debating at school, I used to do all these debating competitions, and... The BBC used to have a programme called Open to Question, which used to invite groups of teenagers to grill public figures and politicians. And they used to recruit the kids for that audience quite often from debating competitions. So I got invited on to this programme and made a lot of noise and became quite reliable. And they always knew that they could go to me if the discussion was drying up and I'd have something to say. Yeah. And so I kept being invited back and... So I got to know them a little bit over, you know, five or six programmes. And then I wrote to them when I was leaving school and said, could I come and work here in my year off? Because it looks like good fun. You went there because it looked like good fun rather than an eventual job? Yes, I wasn't thinking about a job. I was thinking about something to do in my year off. You then went to Oxford and studied PPE at Hartford College. But you also took on more work at the BBC alongside your degree. What were you doing? Basically, I, I worked full-time in my year off, went to university, and in my first year of university, I started working for the BBC's Ethnic Minority Programmes Unit. Okay. I'd basically been invited onto one of their shows as a guest and had met the boss, and he'd said, what do you think of our programmes? And I said, I don't really watch them, to be honest. He said, why not? I said, because they're a bit boring. They're the things my mum and dad used to watch. And... He said, what do you think you could do better? I was like, well, probably, because I was 18 and yeah. cocky. And he said, well, come on, come and take over. And so I did that for two years in my first and second year at university. And I would go to the studios in Birmingham at Pebble Mill for two days a week and then be a student the rest of the week. That must have been absolutely exhausting, though. I mean, did it not send you half mad? No, not really, because being a student is, you know, you can be as lazy as you want. Mm. And I was really lazy. You know, I never went to lectures. So <laughs> as an Oxford student, the thing you have to do is write essays. So I could write, I would write three essays a week and just get away with it and, and then go off and play at being a TV presenter for two days a week. So that was fine. But then in my third year, I had been told by my tutors that I had to stop working on TV because I was going to fail my degree. And so I did. I, I, I quit the Ethnic Minority Programmes Unit. But then Newsround came along and said, you can work for us in your holidays and then go full-time when you leave, when you graduate. Tell me about Newsround, because I, just from a Generation X kid who's fascinated by it. Newsround was absolutely fantastic as a, you know, as a place to go and learn about TV and journalism. In a small team of 
four or five people who would go on screen, we would basically divide up the world and go, you know, you do Rwanda, I'll do the US elections. I was I was obsessed by Bosnia and the, the war in former Yugoslavia, so I used to go off and do that, and America and Russia, you know. And you would get to do these amazing things. You know, I interviewed Gorbachev and, you know... Um, we would make little documentaries all over the world. News Round Extra, it was called. And it was absolutely fantastic. And as a training ground, it was brilliant because the whole thing about News Round was assume no knowledge. So you really had to learn how to write yeah. stories properly so that people understood them. And if you were going to do that, you had to understand it yourself. Um, so you really had to get to grips with the news. So from that point of view, it was brilliant. So the whole time you're studying at Oxford, you're working too. You can't have had much time to cook what were you eating while you were at uni? I ate total rubbish for three years. I mean, I don't know how I survived, really, because for two of those years I was living in the halls of residence, but I never went to the canteen. Oh. I think I sort of ate in the hall of, you know, like maybe twice in two years. So the rest of the time I was just eating total rubbish, flapjacks and ambrosia <laughs> creamed rice and... Kebabs and fast food. I had quite a lot of money for a student because I was working. Mm. So I could indulge myself a little bit. You know, there used to be a Pizza Express in Oxford that I used to go to as a student in, you know, this was in 1989. Very fancy. Very fancy in those days. This was before Pizza Express sort of went massive and went national. And it only had a few... A uh, few restaurants in those days, and it was a very fancy one in Oxford. But um, so yeah, we used to go there, we used to go there as a treat. So you went down Pizza Express. What did you have? Something called a Prince Carlo pizza, which I think they only did in a few of their branches. <laughs> Never heard of this. No, I know, and and they don't do them anymore. Certainly, but talk um, me through the Prince Carlo. It was strangely nice. It was leek and rosemary, and cheese. And the only time I wouldn't have a Prince Carlo was if I was feeling really dirty and needed. A, a sloppy Giuseppe. Yeah. And that's probably still my Pizza Express pizza of choice. Yeah, nobody really needs a menu in Pizza Express, do they? No. We all know where we're going. Most people that go to uni, they're just um, focusing on the academic and then the social side of it. But you were already starting your career at the same time. So how do you look back at being a student now? Do you look back at it fondly or...? I had a not very satisfying student experience, I think, because I I didn't throw myself into all the things that I would have done had I just been a student. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had always thought as a kid that I would go to Oxford and join the union and be a debater and get involved in student politics, do a lot of student drama and plays and maybe go to Edinburgh Festival with an Oxford group or something like that. You know, that was what I pictured my... Oxford student, you know, time to be. But you kind of leapfrogged that. You didn't need to do Edinburgh. You didn't well, it wasn't need that I didn't to need those. to. I just couldn't, you know, because I was working. So I was working all the way through. And then I think because I was working, and I in those days, you know, it was really drummed into you when you arrived at the BBC. You cannot be political. You cannot express mm. an opinion. You are now a public figure. You're in children's TV as well, so... You, you know, you cannot get drunk in public. You cannot, you know, you put a foot wrong and your career is over. So I was really careful, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, um, so I didn't do any of the things that I would have normally done at university as a student. I was, you know, I was already 
going, right, I'm on TV, I've got a career, I've got to think about this and that and all the rest of it. And, and as a result, it, socially I didn't do all the things that I would have done, but also academically I think I didn't. I, I tuned out of my degree because I didn't need my degree mm. to have my career. I mean, I was very lucky and I had a great time and I wouldn't do it differently. You know, it's not that I wouldn't have worked through university had I been given the opportunity again. I was having a great time. I mean, I was, I was studying South Asian politics and then being sent off to cover the Pakistani elections and coming back and telling my tutor about interviewing <laughs> Benazir Bhutto <laughs> and the head of the army and all of that kind of stuff, you know, and then quoting you know, big politicians in my essays and saying, well, you know, when I met Nawaz Sharif, he told me blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I had an amazing time. And, of course, it was brilliant in terms of where it left me career-wise. But as a, as a student experience, it was a bit kind of... I was very semi-detached. And then when my little brother was going to university, you know, I, I said, look, don't do what I did, you know, make sure you, make sure you really enjoy it and do all the things you want to do and, and work hard as well. My chat with Krishnan Guru Murthy will be back in just a minute. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So outside of hard news, you've interviewed celebrities like Robert Downey Jr., Tarantino, Richard Ayoade, and sometimes they can make for awkward viewing. Robert Downey Jr. walked out on you and Quentin Tarantino clearly wasn't very happy. As someone whose main focus is current affairs, what do you get out of doing interviews like that? Celebs and culture has always been part of the news. So, yeah. you know, wh wh why are you interviewing these people? Well, because it's part of the news. You know, if, if, if there's a massive movie or a massive play or a massive book, then we will do that on Channel 4 News and always have. So that's why we've always done those sorts of interviews. The problem used to be that there was this very, very strict junket culture mm. in Hollywood film that would put up movie stars for interviews on the basis that you're just talking to them about the film and it's all within very strict parameters and it's basically a stitch up you know the, the, the studios have got massive power to control what's going on and they you know journalists don't dare annoy anybody or upset anybody by asking you know a question about something they didn't want to talk about and does that make you cross i mean 
doesn't make me cross, really. I mean, I just kind of think it's a bit pathetic. Um, you know, if you're going to do an interview, then do an interview. You know, you've got to be open to being asked anything. You don't have to answer. Um, you're under no... You know, it's not like any Hollywood star is like a political leader or a business leader, you know, where you're holding power to account in the same way. So if they don't want to talk about it, then fine. And... In Robert Downey Jr.'s case, he had every opportunity to just politely say he didn't want to talk about it. When that blew up and the clips went viral and the story became about you, how did you feel? Uh, it was quite hard. Mm. You have to tough it out and go, you know, and kind of go, it's all them, it's not me, um, these idiots, it's the way the stupid system works and all the rest of it. I have a very different approach now. And I do a lot of long interviews on, on both on Channel 4 News and on my podcast with a lot of uh, artists and actors and musicians. And there are very few people who you've got to really ask hard questions of. Mm. But I think it basically if you're going into a situation where you go, I can't ask that, then you've got to ask it, you know, is the <laughs> yeah. thing. And, and, and lots of people don't because they're scared. And I just can't. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't. When you're doing Channel 4 News, when you get back, what's your first special go-to snack? Well, it's usually a drink. But, um, what do you drink? I'm a bit faddish about drink, but my, my, sort of my constant is a nice glass of red wine. OK. So it would generally be a glass of red wine. We're going through a bit of a gin phase at the moment and, and a minor cocktail phase. So um, I think this is probably just lockdown as we sort of joined the alcoholics across Britain. But um, What kind of cocktail would you... What is A bad the, kitty. Go on. A bad kitty is um, from Kitty Fisher's restaurant. I love Kitty Fisher's. Um, and it is slow gin, gin, slush of elderflower cordial, bit of lemon juice, topped up with champagne or Prosecco or Cava or something, something fizzy. Um, I'm very bad at coming in on our greys, you know, sort of, and so I will come and, you know, grab um, So a your family don't or... wait for you to come in and you... No, if, if I've been doing the news, or... then we don't have a family meal, no. Do they ever watch it? Not often, yeah. to be honest. I mean, they will sometimes if it's a really big day or if there's something they're really interested in. So I interviewed KSI, okay. the, uh, the YouTuber... Um, recently and took my 14-year-old to the interview. Wow. It's the only thing he's ever wanted to watch me do, you know, since he was old enough to know that Channel 4 News was a thing. Um, so he watched that. They're not really that interested and are not impressed and don't want to follow in my footsteps. They absolutely refuse to treat you like a star. Yeah, which is good. I mean, when they were little, they did the classic thing of looking behind the telly, you know, <laughs> yeah. and going, where's dad? And, yeah. and there are pictures, you know, my Twitter avatar is a picture of my son in 2008. So he would have been one and a half. And I was in Washington for Obama's inauguration. And he, he's standing at the telly sort of with his arms out as if he's kind of giving me a hug because he hasn't seen me for a few days. Oh. So they used to do that. They used to, that. That's when they used to watch the telly and go, yeah, that, dad's on the telly. A lot of people probably feel right now like things have never been more crazy and chaotic, especially right now with conspiracy theories and we're coming, hopefully pulling out of COVID and 
Do you get freaked out by the world? I don't get freaked out by the world because I think if you're covering the world every day and all of these divisions and culture wars and political upheavals and um, conflicts, then you you know you, you're you're used to seeing the ebb and flow, and you see where it's going and you see what's happening, and that becomes a source of normal. Um, you know, you certainly worry about the world. You know, you worry about where, what, what's going on. You, you worry about the society you're living in and the one your kids are inheriting and, um, and the general, you know, tone of the world we live in. You know, that, that, that alarms you. And, and to be honest, if, you, if you're in my job, you probably see a bit more of it than everybody else. So m- maybe you think there's more bad stuff around than everybody else does because you're tuned into it. Um, So maybe you can worry yourself a bit too much. But, uh, you know, it takes quite a lot to shock you after a while, I think, because you are so used to it. So, yeah, you don't really switch off from what's going on at all. I mean, the funny thing is I go to Australia most years because my wife's Australian and we try and go for a long period, you know, three weeks, sometimes four or even five when the kids were little. So that's when I come the closest to not really following the news. I'm, I'm always amazed by how little has changed <laughs> yeah. by the, when I come back. You know, nothing's really happened in three or four weeks. It's basically the same news as it was when I left. And, you know, it really takes some major event or natural disaster or volcanic eruption or, you know, assassination or something massive to really go, God, something's happened while I was away. You know, m- most of the time, you know, it, things are just incremental changes. You met your wife, Lisa, in 2003 on a blind date? Sort of, yes. She doesn't like calling it a blind date. She says we were introduced by friends. Um, and it wasn't blind for her because she knew who I was, but I didn't know who she was. You were engaged just 18 months later. Yeah. You've said before you became parents that you worked hard and played hard. I think that was the phrase. What does that mean? Well, I think we were both really busy at work doing lots of you know exciting stuff and and going out was you know we were sort of you know when you're in your late 20s early 30s you're super confident you're going out all the time you know every, you know what you like you know you know who you like hanging out with and what you like doing and 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 you are living life to the full and we both definitely were um how do you end up engaged within 18 months <laughs> i think we both just knew quite quickly and yeah. I think we sort of decided to have a child first. Yeah. And then we thought, well, if we're going to have a child, then we better get married. I think we very quickly realised that actually we kind of had quite an awful lot in common. Not, not in terms of sort of, you know, what we liked doing or that kind of stuff, but sort of the core beliefs, you know, whether it was sort of about God or mm. <laughs> politics or kids or family or those sorts of core values, even though they're very different because Lisa's you know, Australian, Christian, you know, from, from Melbourne. But she was born in Britain, actually, but um, grew up in Australia. And I was, you know, son of immigrants growing up in the north of England. So very different backgrounds, but an awful lot that was really similar about what we basically believe. And I think that became apparent very quickly. Your first date was in a Chinese restaurant. 
So did that set the tone for the things that you ate afterwards? Are you both into Chinese food? Are they your comfort foods? Well, to be honest, we like Japanese food a lot more than Chinese. Um, and so, yes, we, we do eat a lot of Japanese food, and I think that's probably both our favourite meal, other than my mum's Indian. It's, it's clean and it's pure and it leaves you feeling healthy and a proper meal rather than the kind of the rubbish that I might eat um, when I'm trying to comfort myself. But we both really like that. If you had to, though, associate one comfort food with Lisa, what is it? We, ha- we do have a secret McDonald's sort of dirty secret. Um, <laughs> where- <laughs> do you know, for the record, I'm going to say that's the most cheapish I've seen you since you arrived today. <laughs> We do yes. have a dirty McDonald's secret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we do. I mean, and we both do actually like an occasional McDonald's. But we have one particular McDonald's that we have every time we land in Australia, in Melbourne. And, you know, you get off the plane and you're massively jet-lagged. You don't know where you are or what time it is. And you don't, you know, you're starving because you don't know what time it is. And there's a drive through McDonald's just after the airport. Um, in fact, there's one just after the airport and there's another one on the way to where our family live on the Mornington Peninsula. And one or either, or sometimes both, um, will get visited for a quarter pounder with cheese and a large fries and possibly a chocolate milkshake. And we both have the same thing. Do you want any sauces? No. Sorry, no, I'm just no, playing the No part. sauces. In fact, we're generally not really a sauce family. Even the kids don't have sauces on there. I mean, my kids have far too much McDonald's. I think that's why McDonald's is back in our lives, because we've got teenagers. No sauces. No. That's one of the most sinister things you've said since you got here. <laughs> not even the, you see, I really like the sweet curry sauce. I've McDonald's. never had it. I, to be honest, I've never even tried them. Not even the barbecue one. I'm just naming sauces. I've tried the barbecue one, yeah, but I'm really not bothered about it. No sauces. Just dry chips. Dry chips, yeah. And then that slight feeling of sort of, what is it you get when you have dry chips? That sort of feeling of as if you're going to die. You know, your chest sort of... <laughs> they just must be all stuck down your throat. <laughs> Babe, just let yourself go. Have a bit of sauce. Honestly, try it. Try it. I can't believe that you've got through to this point in life. What is it about sauces? They're just messy. You know, I mean, I find... <laughs> <you know, laughs> I find sort of fast food a bit difficult to eat because it's messy, but, I mean, I like it, but... Your kids are now teenagers. When you look at them, what do you think that you've passed on to them? Oh, I think at the moment... <laughs> That's the sound. <laughs> That's the sigh, isn't oh. that, the father of teenagers? Um, I think at the moment it's probably quite good in that they are reacting to everything that I try to pass on. But, but you know, because I did exactly the same thing with my parents, where I rejected everything they said, but I was taking it in. So, I, 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 you know, I, I'm probably terrible. I do lecture them about what they should and shouldn't be doing. I try and say, but you should do this and you should do that. And I know it, they just kind of can't stand it and reject it all. But it's going in there somewhere. My daughter just got some work experience. And I've never talked to my daughter about my own career and how I got my job and all the rest of it, but... I was able to say, look, I am here because I've got some work experience. That, that's how I got my first job. You've got to make the most of it. And, but generally, I mean, what have we passed on? Be nice. Cuddles. You have become more cuddly during the interview. <laughs> I've got to say. You have. You kind of came in being very much your, new, your persona, but now you've gone more into 
Yeah, I don't know if that. I don't know if you're happy to hear that or not. That's no, that's a good thing. You've got to the real me, Krishna Guru Murthy. Thank you for comfort eating with me. Thank you very much for asking me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> this episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Gabriella Jones. The series producer is Leia Green, and the executive producer is Kathy Drysdale. Sound design is by Sammy L. Anani. If you like this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review. You can subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. This is The Guardian. 